Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session First Open a Vein, Writing Through Personal Pain, featuring Jesse Cole, Walter Mikach and Hannah Rochelle in conversation with Jesse Blackadder, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Welcome, everyone. Gosh, we're on the downhill run, aren't we? It's beautiful Sunday afternoon. It's just got this cruisy, lovely feeling. Has everyone had a good time at the festival? I know. It's been amazing, hasn't it? I just feel like I've walked through the grounds, even looking through here now. The sun is shining. There's happy crowds. It's just been fantastic. It's lovely to see you all here. And congratulations on choosing this panel with the slightly scary name. We can blame Morel Day for this name. She said, first open a vein. It's a writer's saying. It's a bit creepy, isn't it? <laughs> but it's actually a really important session and I feel really honoured to be presenting it to you today because it's about writing through personal pain. And I am betting my bottom dollar there are people in the audience who've lived through personal pain Maybe people who are wanting to write about it, you know, this, this is the human experience, is personal pain. Um, our panellists here are willing to not only write about it, but sit here in front of you and tell their stories, which takes a certain sort of courage. They've all lived through really quite devastating experiences and they've all found ways to work with and through their pain. And not just to do that, but to make beauty from it, which is an incredible gift. And, and I think that's why it feels so precious to me to be sitting here with them on the, on the stage today to offer this to you, this discussion about pain and what it means for who we are and how we find meaning in our lives and the stories that we tell each other. So I'm going to introduce this amazing group of people. Sitting in the centre is Jessie Cole, who many of you will know, a beloved local author. Jessie grew up in an isolated valley not that far from here and she lived a bush childhood, swimming in creeks and running around barefoot and free-range adventuring. Her first novel, Darkness on the Edge of Town, was critically acclaimed. It was shortlisted for the 2013 Australian Literature Society Gold Medal and longlisted for the Dobby Literary Award. Her second novel, Deeper Water, was also released to critical acclaim. And Jessie's beautiful memoir, her third publication, is about the importance of home, family and forgiveness. And it's about finding peace after the devastation, I guess you would say, of two suicides in her immediate family. Please hold your applause because I'll introduce all of our panellists together. Walter Mykak became widely known in the aftermath of the Port Arthur massacre where his wife Nanette and young daughters Alana and Madeline were tragically killed. Walter became a prominent advocate for tightening gun laws and he co-founded the Alana and Madeline Foundation. Today, he's a motivational speaker and author, also a pharmacist in Suffolk Park, for <laughs> anyone who didn't know. And his books include To Have and to Hold and The Circle of Life. His most recent book, Letters of Love, is a compilation and it was acknowledging the Foundation's 20th anniversary. And in that book, more than 50 prominent Australians have written letters to family members, future versions of themselves, figures like St Peter, and even concepts like Australia. Hannah Richell, who's sitting at the end, worked in the publishing and film industries, marketing books and movies. And in 2007, when she was pregnant with her first child, she began writing. And that led to her first novel, Secrets of the Tides, shortlisted for the Australian Independent Bookseller Best Debut Fiction Award, the ABA General Fiction Book of the Year, and the ABA Newcomer of the Year. And just as a side thing, it happened to be translated into 15 languages. So I think you could say a pretty stunning success. She's since published two novels, The Shadow Year and The Peacock Summer. 
Hannah has also written for a number of media outlets, including Harper's Bazaar, The Independent, Fairfax Media and Australian Women's Weekly. Hannah lost her husband, Matthew, who headed the publishing company Hachette Australia in a sudden accident in 2014. Please make our guests very welcome. I think it's important to start with the pain part of our writing through personal pain panel. And you can see that the, the people sitting here in front of you faced things that most of us would, would be our worst nightmare for most of us to face. And we're talking about murder, suicide and fatal accident. You know, they, they are the things that make your blood run cold. They're also the turning points. They're the moments in which nothing is ever the same again in your life if this has happened to you. Now, people respond differently in the face of tragedy. So some people go inwards, try to work it out inside and sort of hold their pain internally. Our three writers on the panel became storytellers or perhaps already were storytellers. They wrote about their experiences, they explored them, they drew them out and they shared them with other people and that was their way of making meaning and understanding from pain. They didn't all start out as storytellers. So I think that's what's so interesting for me with this group of people is that uh, some were storytellers already and some weren't when these events happened. So I'm going to start with you, Jesse, if I may. Um, what I'm going to do is talk to each person for a little while because I think you'll agree with this subject. We just want to sink in to each person a bit. It's not a sparky topic. It's one to really drop into and explore. So you were growing up really as a bit of a wild child, I guess, in the in a forest, in a house not far from here, and you had in some ways an idyllic childhood and yeah. a close-to-nature childhood. Yeah, well, my parents um, moved from Sydney when I was three months old and they bought um, some p pastoral sort of land in Burringbar and they built a house but they also started a garden. They sort of started planting before they built the house and um, and really now the garden has become more like a forest. It's taken over the house. Um, so I guess me and my brother were just sort of free to roam in this sort of pleasure. You know, it was like a botanical gardens really. And um, we, yeah, we just swam in the creek and sort of played in gangs of kids and, I don't know, had the time of our lives really. It was kind of enchanted in a way, but then what happened? Then what changed? So my dad had two daughters from a previous marriage and they used to come and stay with us for school holidays. And um, when I was 12, my 18-year-old sister committed suicide um, and it was something that my family hadn't seen coming in, in, in any way. I mean, she had, she had been quite a troubled teen, but I think anyone who has teenagers will sort of recognise that it is quite difficult to tell sometimes when someone's uh, a, a, a truly troubled teen or just a teen. And so with my sister, they didn't, um, they didn't know and none of us knew. And, um, and so... My parents were just devastated, totally devastated. And um, and so the, the life that we had known was just, just collapsed completely. And my dad, um, he went mad. He, he, not instantaneously, but over a, a number of years, he, he lost his mind. Um, and yeah, six years later, he committed suicide as well. Yeah. So I was 18. So it's like my adolescence was kind of bracketed by these two deaths. So, so you went from enchantment to nightmare in a yes. sense. What yeah. happened to you? What, how did this form and change who you were? I think, um, I mean, it's, it's at the time, of course, it, there's so much going on, it's really difficult to mm, even know like a, how, did it, how you would go about answering that question. But... Um, I can see with hindsight that, um, I mean, lots of things happened to me, but one of them was that I really didn't feel um, that there was any place in the wider community for someone with a story as bad as me. Like, I didn't know how to be in the world with my story. 
And so I moved back to my childhood home when uh, – well, actually, I, f- I had a baby and then I moved back to my childhood home and I just stayed there. And so in this forest that my parents had created and I, pr- I pretty much kind of stayed there for a decade. Um, I, had, I had two little kids at that stage. And, yeah, so, I, I mean, at the time I didn't think, oh, I'm having a grief response – I just, like, made a decision, this is what I'm going to do. And then, but looking back, it's it's very clear to me that I, uh, that I stayed at, you know, I stayed in, the, the, in this place that had been very sustaining for me as a child um, as a response to those two deaths. I mean, it's interesting to think about it as a response because in the, in the book you talk about almost the person you became because of this experience. And, and what sort of person was that? Well... Yeah, I mean, as a child, I think I was very vivacious and really expressive and my parents had, um, they had encouraged that. I mean, they're, they're, they had very distinct sort of parenting ideas where they didn't want to interfere with whoever we were. So it's like we were, my brother was very quiet and shy and that was okay and I was very sort of bubbly and, um, and you know, I don't know. I, I like to talk. I like to talk a lot, and um, and you know, they wanted us to be ourselves. And so, but after those deaths, I just felt like I couldn't speak anymore. I lost the capacity to, um, to inhabit that person that I had been, and I became really, really. I felt kind of muted and um, quiet and toned down and also because I'd watched my father go mad I was very frightened of that I had this propensity inside me that I was like him and that if something went terribly wrong the way it had for him then I was likely to follow that kind of path so I was very watchful of myself and very restraining of myself so if I um I I guess I just became quieter and and much much more um kind of closed yeah and I remember, you know, hearing you say once that could have been you for the rest of your life. That, that yeah. could have actually become – you could have become the person who really just went into the, the tiny little cocoon. Mm, but mm. how come you didn't? Um, well, I, I, I don't actually know but I had – my body – as well as having that sort of stuff going on, I was having a lot of stuff happening with my body where my my um, I had extreme migraines and I had a lot of pain. And so it was like because I couldn't express or I couldn't find any language or any person to talk to about what was what had happened or what I was going through, my body became very expressive about what I wasn't talking about is how I see it now. I mean, at the time I just thought I'm the sort of person who gets migraines. But um, I happened upon this woman who... Um, who did this thing called Alexander Technique, which was around posture and stuff. But she also happened to be, just by coincidence, a, um, a, a counsellor. And so I went because of my migraines, but she um, she got me talking and um, and she was incredible. The way that she listened to me, I had never been listened to like that. And she was the first... Um, person that I'd really encountered who seemed to find me acceptable like it was it was okay for me to have a story like that and she was willing to hear it and um, and I began to speak like I had not spoken as though I had been silent for years and I just talked and talked I saw her for five years (laughs) and um, and I really do feel like she was the difference between who I could have become you know, even also in terms of continuing pain and continuing um, with body problems with my body and 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 who I manage. Like, I, I feel I've been slowly attempting to make my way back to the vivacious child that I was. I'm not saying I'm there yet, but I'm, get, I'm getting there. Yeah. Well, I remember even when I first met you, you were still a very... Um, I, I thought shy. That was how I, I categorised you. I guess yeah. that was about ten years ago yeah. now, and it's like, oh, Jesse. I was terrified. Very shy. Terrified. Yeah. 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 So you began to find your voice, but not just in speaking. You actually began yeah. to write. So this counsellor said to me that you know sometimes it's useful. I find if people write things down, it's just another way that sometimes works for people. 
And because she had been, she was so important to me and I believed everything she said, you know, I, I really thought, well, if she says I should try that, I'll try it. And, um, and so I started to write. And I did this strange thing where I, instead of writing journal entries or anything like that, I wrote these things that I called stories and they were things that had happened to me but they were very fiction-like in the way that I wrote them and I have no idea why they came out that way. That was just the way that they, they came out. And when I finally – she used to say, you know, I'll read anything that you've written, I'd love to. And when I finally um, got up the guts to share something I'd written with her, she said, um, I, th I think you're a writer. And um, I, I, I just uh, – I had no concept that that would be her response. Um, and I – yeah, it was like a, a complete um, – change in the way that I thought about myself, I suppose. I mean, really, it was another life-changing experience, wasn't it? Because, you know, looking back now, you can see that your life began to shift then as you incorporated this self that, that actually yeah. truly was. And it. also, um, because I had become so um, confined, and I'm talking, I'm not talking, I am talking in actual life, like living in this forest and not leaving and all that sort of stuff, but I'm also talking about in terms of who I'd become as a person, like I was very confined. Writing gave me a space where I could be really free and I could explore all these things that I wouldn't explore in real life because um, I would be too frightened. And I was frightened of my wild self or my, you know, all these parts of myself that I thought might go down this track of eventual madness but in fiction I could try out any of that and I could try it out in a different gender and I could do all sorts of things and so um but this is not this book obviously but when I when I discovered that um that place which is an imagined place but where you can manage your emotional material or the things you might be too frightened to do in real life um I felt so free yeah so that began an extraordinary journey, not just for you as a writer but actually for this book because mm. it, it morphed through different forms. So could you tell us a bit about what happened on that journey? So I first I wrote the first draft of this book about over 10 years ago, like maybe 14 years ago, and, um, and it was very different. It was all these intertwined stories and um, it, it didn't – I wrote it as though it was fiction, as though it wasn't me and – it was so wonderful to have those stories exist um, outside of me and be other. And um, But I think that – I mean, I do think autobiographical fiction is a thing and people sell it, but it was because it was so close to my actual story, it was always a bit of a problem in terms of publishing. Like, um, So eventually I kind of got talked around and it needed to be um, – memoir and for me that because I'd actually written the first draft in third person so which is a which is a funny thing I think to do um but it enabled me at the time to I had stories that were from my sister's perspective and from my father's perspective and and I thought of it originally as like a biography of a family and that everyone should have a say and it's interesting to think about now because it's almost like I wasn't really an individual. I was still like a, a sort of strange con con conglomerate of all my family members and I felt like I should represent them all. So it took me a really long time to accept that um, maybe I just needed to tell my story and turn it into a, into a story that talked about having an eye. Yeah, it was a very long, long process. And many drafts, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I think most most of us who write about pain do not have that response of somebody reading it and saying, wow, you're a writer. I mean, most of the writing about pain is raw and personal and, and sometimes that is its only function, you know, is, is that personal thing that we need to write something down. Uh, could you please share with us that part of the memoir where you talk about that amazing woman who set you on this journey? Yes. Vada. When I first met Varda, I had lost faith that there was a language I could speak that could be heard. Outside the forest, I felt like a person stranded in a foreign land where none of the words I used made any sense. Whenever I tried to broach a topic that was meaningful to me, I felt I was speaking gibberish. In grief, language itself seems to fragment. If, on top of that, no one can hear you, the sense of dislocation is compounded. 
I had become resigned to this feeling of misunderstanding or remoteness, the blankness of people's faces in response to my words. But it hurt me greatly to move through my life so unheard. It is hard to overstate the importance of being able, after so many years of silence, to simply speak. I didn't know how much I needed someone to bear witness to the happenings of my life, but when I met Varda and she looked into my eyes, the shadow walker in me, that terrifyingly wounded being that had no place in the world, came forward. At first that part of me was timid, expecting, expecting to be repulsed, but Varda was undaunted. I talked about everything, my sisters, my father, my mother, my brother, my children, gave the lot. There wasn't anything that Varda could not hear. Every fortnight she would coax me onto her table and try to help my body release some of the strange tension it held. There was no massage but a light lifting of limbs with some verbal instructions. The neck releases the head forward and up. It was normal, apparently, for emotion to be released along with this tension and Varda would often ask me what I was feeling. So unused to the question, mostly I wouldn't know. She would ask me then about images that came to mind, any memories or thoughts, and this would lead always right back to my childhood. Varda chose her words carefully, each one imbued with very, a very specific meaning. I'd never met someone so particular about language. Intelligence hummed in the air around her, almost electric. I found myself listening closely to each word she spoke. When Varda said, try writing some things down, I listened. I started writing in secret first, as I did most things, but the words came tumbling out. In writing, there was no uncomfortable silence, no awkwardness, no withdrawal of connection, just the open space between what was in my head and what was on the page, and the liberation of it was giddying. Walter, I'm going to move to you now. Yep. So could you set the scene, if you would, and tell us what your ordinary life looked like before the events at Port Arthur? Um, so uh, we moved from Melbourne. We're living in Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne, um, to Tasmania, to a tiny little place called Eubina on the Tasman Peninsula with the view of setting up a, a pharmacy there. Um, it was actually an old church which um, converted into, a, into the pharmacy and we thought, what an ideal place to go and bring up your children. You know, we, the children were, uh, were, well, they were two and four at the time. And um, it just seemed like a, a great opportunity. Um, my wife's parents were living down there. Um, and we just saw it as this opportunity for a completely new chapter to our life. And can you tell us what happened for you on that day in 1996? So I, um, I sponsored the local uh, golf competition um, for my pharmacy business and uh, we were playing at about two, well, probably at 1.30 in the afternoon and we could hear actual noises like gunshots coming from across the bay and, you know, we, the instant response was, oh, they must be doing a reenactment um, and, you know, it was like, so it was just sort of cheerful banter. And that as we got to the, the clubhouse, you know, there was a, a young couple ran in and said, we've just been at the, the historic site and there's someone who's shooting everyone. And even then, it didn't quite fathom that that was a possibility. And it was sort of difficult to believe. And then, or then I realised that, they, you know, my family were there. They'd gone there for a picnic. Um, I drove to the site and it was... Well, it was just, it's difficult to, to describe. It was like a, a war scene, really. Um, you know, I drove to the front gate. There was, there was a car and there was four bodies on the ground there. Um, but that, it still didn't really quite... I mean, I think the shock of it just didn't quite really sink in. Um, I went to the side. I found the family car um, and looked for most of the afternoon and it wasn't really till, uh, till it was dark, till the evening, that um, the local doctor, who was friends of ours came and told me that um, she'd identified Nanette and the children at the top of the, at the road, at the top of the side. And I suppose, you know, I'm sure you're all feeling the same way. This was a, a public tragedy. You know, Jesse's described a very personal and private tragedy, but, you know, there's not a person here who probably doesn't remember that incredible tragedy. What was it like to be 
at, at your at the most terrible moment to be so in the public eye? Um, well, I mean, in some ways just numb, in some ways just... Uh, I kept, fa- kept feeling like it was good, that I was going to wake up and it was going to be a, a dream. And so, as an example, the next day was my birthday and I woke up in my house and there was no noise and there was obviously Nanette wasn't lying next to me and I opened the drawer... Um, on her bedside table, and there was this card of this uh, a black a black man holding a little white baby in his, in his arm, and there was nothing written in there. And um, I knew then, you know, that this wasn't a, it wasn't a nightmare, it wasn't a dream, but it's, it really has happened. And then the news came on, you know, I think it was about eight o'clock in the morning, and um, all the reports were coming in, and the yeah you know, media were basically flooding here from all over the world. So. Um, to be, you know, then being at home and having this huge crew of media at the end of the street, it was like, it was like your whole world just turned upside down. So not just the grief and the disbelief of what's happened, um, but also just having to deal with that. I feel like it, it's an enormous leap to step to the next question because there's so much experience before the next question, but... At what point did you feel that you could set down words, that you could actually start to to deal with this on the page? Uh, well, the real impetus, I suppose, was was what I felt I owed my wife. Well, yeah, particularly Nanette. She loved reading. Voracious reader and was just forever reading P.D. James and Agatha Christie. Just There was just book after book after book. And I thought... Look, she's not here, but I owe it to her to try and record, you know, what our lives and what's happened here and the aftermath and the trial, um, uh, so that you know, if someone else is in that situation, it gives them some, I suppose, some road of of dealing with some of those emotions and some of that grief. So um, that's how it eventuated. I, was, I had actually recorded some of those things. So I, I do remember uh, writing at the at the trial and when I went back and read that and I thought, oh, my God, that is it's pretty powerful. Mm. It's about, yeah, so um, I, knew, I knew that there was a lot of material that was going to be able to be used and, and it was just a case of tying it cohesively to, to, to tell the story. Yeah. So the first book that you wrote was To Have and To Hold, which was a tribute to your wife and daughters. Yeah. You've continued to write in in different ways and in different forms. So did that set you on a journey where you felt that was the way to deal with pain, was to express something through it? In, yeah, in a lot of ways. A lot of ways, you know, recording how when you're at the depths of your despair, when you don't care about living or dying, where you, in some cases, you would rather be dead. Um, I, I remember when Pam, uh, Dr. Pam told me, um, and I just remember screaming and saying, you know, couldn't he have even left me one? And really just wanted to run out, because the, the gunman was still large, you know, wanting to run out and just really go as well. Um, but then you look at life and you think, well, there, there's got to be some reason why I'm still here, you know, and, um, you know, making changes as a result of that with... Yeah, the, our gun laws and um, was really my main thrust originally, and then um, starting the Alana and Madeline Foundation. So, you know, f- from that event, there's been some really fantastic things come. Could you talk a little bit about the work of the foundation? Sure. So, um, it resulted as as a, from one of the letters that I got um, in the aftermath, and um, from a, a dad who also had children the same age. And he said, look, why don't you set something up that's going to help children who have suffered from violence or, or loss of family? So we've, we've grown over that 21 years now um, to help. We've got a Buddy Bear program, which is a school... Um, so it's a school curriculum. Um, and our latest um, thing that we've got is the eSmart program. And that's teaching children and parents about cyberbullying, uh, about the, you know, the threats online. Um, and it's run in all public libraries around Australia, about a third of all schools in Australia. So, and and also in some of the Danish territories, because Princess Mary is our 
uh, international patron. So, you know, you, you, I really have to pinch myself sometimes to think what's been done in their names and, and that their names are, you know, talked about on a daily basis. Mm. Mm. I, I felt that even just preparing this. It was like their, their names were so present in everything mm. that I was reading. It's like, yeah, their names are being spoken and that felt really beautiful. Would you um, share the letter that you have written in this amazing collection, Letters of Love, which celebrates the 20th anniversary of the foundation? Sure. Um, and it's interesting because I was listening to Peter Grester before and um, he, his overwhelming thank was thank you was to his parents for sticking with him. For um, So, you know, I, I really think my journey, my parents and my family have ended up being what really got me through the worst of those times. So around November 1957, half a world away, a 17-year-old left Croatia with just a few possessions in a suitcase. That girl was Milka Mijak, my mum-to-be, an attractive woman who had endured a not-so-normal upbringing. Born in rural Croatia in 1940, she was one of six. Her father, Andrei, was killed in World War II when she was three. Her mum and two other siblings died from disease when she was eight. To say she didn't experience much in the way in parenting is an understatement. Despite all this, she arrived in Australia in 1958. She worked hard and made herself a new life. Mum, or Emily as she was called in Australia, I love you and all the things that you've done for me over my life. Uh, I love you for every whack. Um, which broke numerous wooden spoons. <laughs> Your persistent love, the values you instilled and all the lessons you've taught me have helped me, have held me in good stead. I often recall your words. If you haven't got something good to say, then don't say it. Or more, most, most often, you're the eldest. It's your fault. <laughs> I love you for, for the eggs and bacons you, you cooked us each morning and all the lasagnas and roasts. Bless you for ensuring that we had dazzling white shirts and immaculately ironed clothes. For all, those, all, all the loving care and nurturing, I thank you with all my heart. My dad, Lyubo, or Danny as he became known, arrived in 1960 from Croatia. On the day he arrived, he was offered a job as a painter, found, found a place to live, and bingo, met my mum. My dad is my hero. He has had demons to fight, yet he's shown me that most, ob most obstacles are conquerable with the right support. Dad instilled in all of us the values of hard work, perseverance and having fun. He worked hard, harder than necessary, but he saw opportunity. The Australia was indeed the lucky country for him. Dad's catch cry for as long as I can remember was, work hard at school because I don't want you to be a painter like me. After a hard day of work, he'd come and kick the footy with us in the park. He'd also take us to our local footy game at, at McLeod, and he'd offer how sweet it was to kick our duties. So, you know, I just remember, oh, how sweet it was to kick that footy through the post and have him smile proudly as he signalled the goal. When we were little, he'd also let us punch him, punch him in the stomach as hard as you can. So, you know, this caused was a, a constant game. And as my brother did, um, he decided that he was going to ram him like a rhino. So this was all good fun until Steve's aim became a bit low and my poor dad's groin was black and blue for weeks. So if I needed support or, or if I needed help or support, they were always there. And for that, I love you. In your ways, you are both extraordinary people. Not perfect by any stretch, but I feel so lucky and proud to call you mum and dad. Love for eternity, Walter. Um, and I just wanted to share another uh, piece out of my uh, this book called The Circle of Life, which is older. I mean, this comes from the days of grief, you know, in the year after Port Arthur. So, and there's lots of reflections and... Uh, affirmations, I suppose, that I used to have on the fridge and read to myself, you know, to, to help bolster myself or to get through each day. So the, the strength of the human spirit is immeasurable. By using our minds, we have the capacity to conquer any situation, adapt and be open to change. 
Your inner spirit will come to you, come to the fore if you give it free reign. Muster all determination and fortitude and have faith that the strength will come. Thanks, Walter. Hannah. So Hannah's story is different in a couple of ways. One is that it's a more recent story and the other is that you were already a storyteller when tragedy came to your life. So could you just paint us a picture of what your life was like before you lost your husband? Yes, so um, I had um, emigrated to Australia um, in 2005 with my then boyfriend, Matt. Um, (laughs) It had been a shared dream that we would um, come here and travel and um, try and set up a life together, um, which we did. And we traveled um, across Australia, got engaged um, and set up a home in Sydney. Um, Matt got um, appointed um, to Hachette Australia and I got a job working for Universal Pictures so we were living this really wonderful exciting life in Sydney Um, we got married had two beautiful kids uh, moved to Balmain and um, I launched my writing career when I was um, pregnant with my first child and um, we were having this really quite dreamy life I think you know we we were sort of waking up and I remember turning to each other and sort of feeling full of gratitude for the for the days that we, we were sharing together in the life we were living yeah it was very beautiful and then uh in July in 2014 so recently what happened well we woke up that day um it was school holidays and it was a beautiful um winter's morning in Sydney blue sky Um, and it started like every other with the kids running into bed and, you know, waking us up. And um, Matt had not long been back from a two-week business trip to the UK and had done a a, then a week of conference with his company. And he was quite tired, and he decided that morning that he was going to do things a bit differently. Um, So he was working on a big strategy and decided he would work out of the office for the day. But he had a meeting with um, a lawyer that uh, the publishing company used for a lot of IP work. And they decided that uh, rather than go and sit in some fancy restaurant and do business in the sort of boring way, they would have what they were calling a board meeting um, down at the beach. Um, which I, I encouraged because Matt was the first to encourage me to, you know, when I got stuck or stalled with my writing and, and my creativity, um, he would always encourage me to change things up a bit. So uh, he took the kids off to, Jude went to soccer camp, and my daughter went to, um, I think we had a childminder that day. And we had a very rare coffee together, which we didn't usually do. And Um, just half an hour snatched time and then we said goodbye outside the coffee shop and kissed goodbye and walked off in our different directions and I went down to my writing studio I was um, halfway through the first draft of my third novel which um, the deadline was getting rather pressing so I was heading straight there to work I spent all morning um, working and then um, I had a phone call from Matt's office and I ignored it because I was busy working and then um, it rang again. So I suddenly had that mother guilt. You get, oh, God, it could be the kids. Picked it up. And it was someone from Matt's office saying that um, the police had been trying to get a hold of um, them because they wanted Matt's home address. And I honestly couldn't fathom in that moment what that meant. Um, and it was only when I hung up and um, sort of closed my laptop and thought, I better go home. Something doesn't feel right. That this terrible sense of dread basically took over me and I locked up my studio and I kind of ran up the hill it was a very short distance to our home and um, when I got to my front door we lived in a very small cottage you could see right through the front door to the back and I could see that there were two people waiting in my front room for me who I didn't recognize and the the sort of light was blocked it looked very dark and weirdly forbidding and I just knew when I put my key to the door that if I went through life was going to change Um, So I opened the door and I went through and there were two um, plainclothes policemen there waiting to tell me that Matt had been in a surfing accident and he died. Gosh, so you really did have the moment of life was completely changed. Yeah, after they told me what had happened, I looked down at my 
coffee table and there was a box of tissues I didn't recognize there and it was I, you know, I realized in that moment that they had brought them with them and it was sort of like this symbol of you know my the grief that was about to hit me um and something Jessie talks about so beautifully in her memoir is grief time and how you enter this new state which doesn't really sort of have any kind of um bearing with where you've been before and sort of how others are, you know you feel like you're so different and on this other time frame to everyone else and I think at that moment I I entered grief time mm. in terms of how you went on with life and again like with Walter I'm, I'm taking an enormous mm. step over that intense period you were already a writer you were well into your third novel and you know you actually had a deadline for that novel so when it came to trying to begin life again and, and pick up life or go back to work as, as people do after grief, what did you do? Well, I, I was um, so shattered really and I, um, I found that the grief was doing very strange things to me physically um, but also emotionally. And I, I had a wonderful counsellor at the Department of Forensic Medicine um, in New South Wales who explained to me that... Um, people that go through shock or sudden trauma, um, if you took a scan of their brain before the event um, and then a scan of their brain after the event, you'd actually see kind of shadows on the scan um, afterwards, which is sort of a representation of the damage that's happened to your brain. And, and I could, her telling me that helped me understand sort of why I felt so fragmented and why I found it so hard to get back to writing. Um, it was, I couldn't sustain a train of thought or any kind of level of concentration for very long. And when you're writing fiction, you kind of need to be able to lose yourself. Um, the kind of sweet spot is when you are immersed in it and you've lost sight of yourself. It's just flowing. Um, and I couldn't get to that place again. I tried and I tried. Um, I, I, I found the whole relationship with books and writing a very difficult one because obviously Matt and I had met when we'd worked in publishing together um, and we built a home filled with books and he was an avid reader as was I and uh, just you know the idea of words and books and reading and writing was so intrinsically linked to my relationship with Matt that it actually became a source of pain rather than comfort and escape so that was quite problematic for me and and I did have to just park the novel and um, give myself time um, but but I did keep writing I, did, I just couldn't do the fiction yeah so can you talk to us a bit about what you did keep writing and how you moved forms so I all through my life I've always written a journal and I tend to sort of go to it in moments of big emotion so falling in love I've got pages and pages of you know diary entries um, and it was the same with heartbreak. And obviously this was my greatest heartbreak. So I think after about a week of Matt's death, I turned to my diary and I opened it up and I started writing. And I think I filled about three journals with just endless thoughts and feelings and memories. And, and it was my way of uh, releasing my pain, I think, was to do it privately. Um, and then... It was about a month after Matt had died and it was my daughter's fourth birthday and we'd had a party for her. And that night I was sitting at home alone um, and sort of surrounded by, you know, sagging balloons and birthday cake. And I'd had this blog which I'd sort of had under duress because I was an author and we're supposed to have, you know, a public profile. And I'd never really known what to write on it. But in that moment, that night, sitting there at home, the kids are upstairs bed and I just felt so incredibly raw and so alone in my pain that I sort of wrote this dream of consciousness and very unlike me I pressed publish and I just I don't know why I did it I just needed to let something out again I think and um and I woke up the next morning and I had this weird thing on my phone say from WordPress saying your stats are booming and I didn't, I didn't really understand, but then it, it transpired that somehow um, my words had sort of gone out there and people had started finding them. And, and I suddenly realized that there was a sort of a whole tribe of walking wounded out there, you know, people feeling sadness and pain. And, 
And um, I felt connected, like for the first time, um, to something sort of bigger than my experience. And it was really powerful. And I think I I remember reading it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, Fairfax picked up on it and wanted to publish it, which I said they could do if they donated to one of Matt's charities that he supported. And and then I, you know, occasionally I'd just go back on the blog and post something. I didn't do it very often, but just when I felt like I had something to share, maybe, um, it, it still feels a bit strange because... It's such a public way of expressing yourself and something so private and personal. But I always took comfort from the fact that the more I opened up um, and shared a bit of myself, the more um, it seemed to register with others. And, um, you know, we sort of, I think, maybe brought each other comfort. They shared their stories with me. And and, and just in sharing a little of myself, I felt more supported and open. Could you share that with us now? Yes, so um, the ex- this is a blog piece, basically. Um, it's sort of a stream of consciousness, and I wrote it um, four months after Matt had died. And then your son asks if he can visit the place where Daddy died, and so you wag a morning off school and drive down to Tamarama while the rest of the city sleeps, and you find the gulls lying upon the beach with their beaks tucked under their wings, and you kick off your shoes and walk down onto the sand amid sculptures that have washed up like treasures from the deep. And you watch as your boy scrambles onto the cliffs and picks a tiny yellow flower, which he carries down carefully for you. And you attempt to answer the hardest questions, questions without answers. And you try not to cry as your daughter looks for her father's footprints in the sand. And then you all return to the car and drive back through the city, which is awake now, and glittering in the mid-morning sunshine. And you're all so quiet, lost in your thoughts, and your love, and your pain. And then you're sitting at home, alone, surrounded by a thousand physical reminders of your old life, struggling simply to draw breath, when an envelope arrives through your door, and inside is a card with a sprig of freshly pressed thyme and a piece of feathery tissue paper which you carefully unfold to reveal a poem hand-printed with painstaking care. And you read the words, which speak to you in ways you'd forgotten words could. And even though you can't stop the tears, you know that the sheer pointlessness of carrying on that you've been wrestling with has been proven false by this simple kindness from a stranger who understands. And while you don't know this person, you want to somehow thank them for their gesture and tell them that their envelope contains so much more than a card and a poem, and a sprig of green from a faraway garden. You want to tell them that their envelope contained hope. And then, when the tears have dried, you lift your gaze and look about at the vast, transparent house you now reside in, and you see how many walls there are to hang pictures upon, and you think about how best to honor your husband's heritage of joy, and you wonder if you're even brave enough to try, but you know you must. So even though you're terrified, and even though you know you're not the same person you were four months ago, you open your laptop and you begin to write. One word at a time, you begin to write again. And then. I don't know about all of you, but... I'm just going to ask for a moment of silence while I collect myself partly. (laughs) But let's just actually honour what's been shared and what's in all of our hearts right now. And I want to thank all of you for being present because we can feel your presence here. And it really, I think, means something to the people sitting on this stage to feel your attention. And now I want to take us on the journey of the last few minutes of the session, the last 10 or 15 minutes, having shared, I think, really those moments of deep sorrow and deep grief and to say... Where does the journey go? Where do we go from here? 
And where has writing taken you in that journey? Has writing been a light that has led you out of that those darkest places? Can I start with you? Yeah, well, I, I think writing, the, the, the one big observation for me is that you look at the world differently. You don't, you know, you're at an event like this and you're looking at detail, you're looking at people, you're looking at, you're observing much more, um, m- in much more detail um, and, and wanting to record that and, and be present when you're with people as well. So, I mean, the most important part, I suppose, when people are trying to help you in grief is to sometimes just listen to what you've got. You know, when we talk about counsellors and um, I had a pastor who was appointed to us, to, to myself and to my family, a couple of days after Port Arthur. He was uh, a Church of Christ minister and I would have thought the person least likely that was ever going to be on my wavelength. And yet that guy, Alan, Alan Anderson, he lives in WA now, he helped me over a period of about 10 years. Uh, whenever things got really bad or I needed to share some of the some of the things that I couldn't share with my family or friends, some of the details or just, you know, some of those dark moments and dark thoughts, I could ring him and talk to him. And that was, that was really, really important. Um, so for me, I think... Uh, and writing is a, an avenue of creativity, of, of creating something new, of creating things as a result of, of that bad event or that's going to maybe avoid that it's an event like that happening again when you look at gun laws. Um, so we're, my foundations, we're about to launch in September a, um, a gun alliance with our organisation and a number of other public bodies in Canberra because we feel as though... You know, it's all very well for the NRA and for gun lobby groups to be talking their message, but, you know, the, the, the general population who likes to walk down the street and not feel like they need to worry about being shot, they don't need to, you know, that we're not going to have those events. You know, the fact that we've only had one mass shooting in 21 years since Port Arthur, uh, which just happened recently in, you know, Margaret River, that, you know, we're on the right track. We... We want to. We want to decrease. We want to be in a culture of not of non-violence and and safety. And because in the end, it's it's our children who are going to inherit that 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 community and that environment. Yeah. Jesse, how about you with your writing journey? I feel like writing's given me my whole life. I mean, I think before I I just felt. I felt so disconnected from the world, like the world at large, that I, but that I couldn't even imagine that I would have a place in it. I couldn't imagine that there was a, a, a reading community or a writing community or anywhere where I would be welcome, really. So I feel like, you know, to... I, I mean, I had this wild fantasy that there, that, that there might be people that were interested in the sort of things that I was interested in, but it was like I was an alien and there was no actual creatures in my world. So I couldn't even imagine such a place existed. And then to find it in such, like, abundance that it's here is, has been um, extraordinary. I mean, I really feel like... If I hadn't have found that avenue and then the – it's not just the act of writing, it's what comes with it, it's the community and the um, and the, the, the people who are interested in the kind of language that you are speaking in and, 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 in, and in communicating with you in that way has been so transformative for me, obviously. Hannah. Well, I mean, writing for me was always a source of joy, so it's become a lot more complicated in that um, I I find myself a single parent and it's my job and there's this kind of sudden pressure on my shoulders to be, you know, producing and delivering to deadlines and um, and, and that's become more complicated in, in lots of ways and, and a pressure that sort of isn't always constructive to, to creativity. Um 
but then I still, you know, the the more time that passes, the more I rediscover my love of it and, and the joy. And I, I am realizing that through my fiction, I can sort of reveal parts of myself and, and thoughts that I have now about love and life and loss. Um, and I can weave them into my stories um, and perhaps make them feel more authentic and more true in some way. So th I, I take heart from that. And... Um, Sort of as another aside, um, I've been able to work with um, the company that Matt worked for um, and some of the other organizations who've been incredibly supportive, um, The Guardian and um, Simpson Solicitors and Hachette. We've all sort of combined to, to pull together a really wonderful prize, um, which is basically out there to seek out new um, Australian writing voices and... Um, elevate them, give them a mentorship, and hopefully work with them towards publication, which is something that my husband was really passionate about um, in this country, was um, championing new writers and, and giving them voice. So, you know, things like that just give you a lot of comfort in sort of darker moments, and you can see that the legacy continues in some way. Um, so... Yeah, sorry, trailing off in a slightly random way. but <laughs> That's all right. It's all right to trail off. We only have a few minutes left and I'm actually just on your behalf going to ask them a last question because I just want to kind of keep us all together as we finish this very beautiful session. So I want you to either say something about your life now to give people a sense of where you are now and if you can fit it in, any advice that you have for people who are dealing with the pains, the tragedies that we, most of us, face in our lives, and, and especially if you want to write about them, any words of wisdom that you might have. So I'll start with you. I think the most important part of, you know, of life, and, you know, this, everyone's going to have the, their, a struggle at some point in their life, is, is having acceptance. Once you have that and you this realisation that, no matter what happens, it's not going to change, you know. And for me, that probably came the day after when I went to the Port Arthur site and I was able to um, say my goodbyes, to hold my, you know, my, my wife and my daughters. And I knew at that point that that was, that was um, not going to change, no matter what. So I could either lock myself in the house and have nothing to do with the world again and that wasn't going to change anything or try and make something happen as a result so that, you know, someone else wasn't going to be in that situation so that, you know, we, we our gun laws are something that as, as a country we can be proud of. Um, but once you have that point, you, you can then seek help. You can get counselling. You can, um, you know, take the roads to, to recovery. Jesse? Um, I'm not really... I I think that the kind of culture that we operate in is one where um, there's so much emphasis on moving on and on getting over things and, um, you know, I think that we, we do better for people who have been wounded if we allowed them to sit with that for a little while, if that was part of the process, you know, um, I kind of feel that, I mean, not that there just should be a certain way that anyone does anything post something traumatic happening to them. I don't feel that way. But I do feel that um, sometimes and there is a need for, for quiet and for hibernation and for, and for um, you know, I, I would call it like the licking of wounds or, you know, giving yourself that time to repair because it's not um, – it's just – I just don't think it's realistic to imagine that – things that are so easily moved on from and sometimes it would be it would just be easier on us on on everyone who's hurting if it was if it was sort of there was more space given for that to be acceptable like I'm in pain that's it you know yeah yeah the expectations that people have in grief are you know so far ranging and and that they do want to speed it up so um, for their benefit more than anything else, to, for them to be able to feel comfortable yeah, in, in dealing with you. Yeah. 
Um, I was given a really beautiful mantra by a counsellor I saw, which became a sort of anchor for me, um, which sort of speaks to what you've both just said um, about acceptance and um, sitting in your pain. And the mantra was simply, this is a moment of pain. Pain is a part of life, and I wish myself peace. And I kind of clung to that. It was on my fridge. Um, and, and I think that kind of sums up for me sort of how you've kind of faced these difficult moments it's you you can't leap into the future because the future is too hard to contemplate and you can't go back to the past so you all you have is the present so it's about acceptance which is so hard to find mm. um but you know wishing yourself peace and self-care i think is is kind of primary when you're going through a, a trauma or a loss yeah i'm going to finish with a reading from Walter's book. Grief has a nasty habit of shutting off corners of our brain that we cannot revisit. To heal ourselves and resolve trauma in our lives, it is essential to acknowledge what has happened in the past. That does not mean living in the past, but allowing it the space it needs. In that way, we can bear the present and allow ourselves hope and enthusiasm for the future. I want you to join me in thanking this amazing panel. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.